Thanks so much. This is the second part in uh, my conversation with Rhonda Rosenheck, where we talk about how her experience with her ex really began to manifest itself in her body. And when was enough enough? And how do you figure out where your boundaries are when part of what the bargain you initially made with yourself was that this was going to be something that you had signed on for and that you could forgive. What happens when it becomes too much and you can't forgive it anymore? Because no matter how hard you're trying to, your body keeps the score and it's not going to let you tolerate this anymore. This is where we kind of get into the meat of how the experience shows up in Rhonda's body. So thank you so much for hanging out for this part of it. Maybe uh, make sure you have something to stay hydrated. Maybe uh, do some dishes or maybe now's a good time to just put your feet up and chill out or, you know, enjoy your walk or your lunch or whatever the heck you're doing right now. Just tuck in for another sweet installment in Life After Tom's Diner, Conversations with Rhonda Rosenheck. And this is lovely. Are you in Maine right now? Am I in a what? In Maine. No, uh, yes, I'm in um, I'm in Westbrook, Maine, which is the suburb of Toronto, of, uh, Portland. Uh, and I love it here. My my niece and my nephew and my two great nieces and my former sister-in-law, with whom I'm still close friends, um, all live here. Awesome. And my my brand new great niece is about two weeks old. I have to say those shots of you, uh, those pictures of you holding her, just your glow and just like that, that there's just nothing like that look on someone's face when they're holding a brand new baby. It's just like- Particularly when she never has to it ever in her life. <laughs> it's, uh, oh. it's clear that there's a, that, that super cool auntie Jean is uh, yeah. strong with you. Yes, oh God, yes. So, okay, so um, I... When did you, I, I wanted to know when you woke up and were like, yeah. done, done. Yeah, I had a, um, I, we visit, we went to Florida every year for Passover and um, we would stay the whole time. That way we didn't have to think about making his kitchen appropriate you know we would cover the little um the little uh efficiency hotel mm -hmm. motel room we had with we just cover everything with foil and we had a bag of stuff we kept in my mother's um storage unit which would grow every year you know and 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 we would be okay and we were in a hotel room and he would sleep most of the morning and i would be out you know i would have hours to myself it was actually uh for us pretty pleasant for me pretty pleasant and, um, but I was always balancing the needs of my mother and my husband and, you know, my needs were always sort of coming last, but I was trying to get them met a little bit. And, um, we would go to a particular beach that he liked and it was about 45 minutes away. And there was a day that it was right before we had to be at my mom's house. I don't think it was actually the Seder. I think it was maybe Friday night dinner, which when everybody's still there, it's still almost as big a deal. And, um, and of course he woke up late and wants to go to the beach. And I said, by the time we drive to the beach, walk to the beach, settle down on the beach, we're gonna have to get up from the beach, walk back to the car and drive back up here, taking into account the fact that there's always gonna be traffic on 95. It doesn't make sense to go. I won't be able to, you know, we won't be able to be there in time. And, and he was angry at me. And I remember, and, and I said, you go, I said, look, all right, you don't have to be there as early as I have to be there. I have to help. You don't have to help. So you go drop me off at this little place. I like to walk around. It's kind of a little outdoor mall called Meisner Park. I said, drop me off there. 
I'll take a cab to mom's when it's ready to, and then you just come straight there afterwards. He was angry at me for not coming with him. And I, I remember saying to him, I understand you being disappointed that I'm not coming with you, but I don't understand you being angry because I'm not stopping you from going. I'm facilitating you going. I'm saying, I'll miss out so you can go and I can still meet my other obligations. So I don't understand why you're angry at me. I, in fact, I reject any reason for you to be angry at me. And he left in a huff angry at me. And that was the moment I, I went to the, sit on a bench there. I walked around a little bit, but very shortly after I got out of the car, I called my friend Susanna and I said, what if this is the moment that my marriage is over? And she sort of talked me off the wall, you know, and, and it wasn't, but I'll tell you what it was. It was the day before I allowed myself to apply for a really attractive job in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts being more about you right. and getting your needs met right. and right. making and yourself happy okay. first. Right. And then I, I got the job and uh, I had a, a, a wonderful summer uh, working at a Jewish spiritual retreat center as the, uh, uh, as the uh, intern, spiritual internship director. The rabbi who hired me, he met with me and, and he knew me, you know, for years of being involved in this community. And, and I said, you know, that my spiritual life looks a lot more like a secular person's life. I just don't really go for the woo woo, you know. And, and he said, no, we have other people for the woo woo. You have right. a very clear <laughs> spiritual life and that's what we want these, you know, we want you in that position. So that a good, yeah. it was, it was troubled, but it was good. And I got the job and I had one day to go from that job to that job. And, uh, you know, they found me an interim place and they found me an apartment. It was all taken care of for me. It was going to be beautiful. It was great. Um, it play, paid nicely. It was in a city I was clearly happy to go live in. I visited. I have very, awesome. like you, intuitive feelings about places. Interesting. Whenever I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I, I believe absolutely firmly that I should be living there. I could be it's, there for five minutes touching ground and I feel it. Um, yeah. But I, I felt good about Toronto um, and uh, I liked it. And so I went and then I came back a, a couple of other times, got, got some, you know, brought whatever stuff I needed there. I just said, does anybody have stuff they can give away? I've got to fill an apartment. I got a beautiful assortment of things, more coffee tables than any one person ever needs to have. But other than that, like some really good things. And, uh, and I made a beautiful home and I said, this is your, you know, this is your cabinet and this is your draw. And if food comes into this house, it's available for anybody to eat. Nothing is just yours, you know, yeah. but, but we can make, you know, he didn't abide by that. He hid Triscuits up in the cabinet above the, the refrigerator and then informed me that he wasn't hiding them. They were in a cabinet of the, of the kitchen, right? So, oh. so, uh, but, um, so I'm, but what was happening all at the same time, I was going into uh, perimenopause I had gained a lot of weight. I was very depressed. Um, I was, I had been training. I don't know if you remember, but I'd actually been doing half marathons and races. Yeah, I remember. Training. And I was doing that. But what was weird was that my body composition wasn't changing as I was doing it. And, you know, I was getting stronger. My muscles were getting heavier and stronger, but I wasn't losing fat. I, there was, I wasn't not fatigued in the mornings, right? Like they, I was, there was really something beginning to downward spiral that was, I presumed had to be, I presumed it had to do with being unhappy and overweight, right? You know, but I, you know, so I, I, I did what I could. I, and then I got up there and I, I bought a bicycle, a folding bicycle. So I didn't even have a car up there. I got rid of my car and I, I biked or walked. Um, and, um, but here were, you know, they, they talk about the stressors, right? So I was in a marriage. I didn't know what to do about, but I was pretty sure I was going to have to leave it. I was in a new city, in a new country, in a new job, in not one, but two new homes in that new place. 
getting around in a different way than I used to, right? Dealing with just just slightly enough different things. Like like Montreal is a foreign country. Toronto just feels like like an Isaac Asimov story where you leave and yeah. come back and things that were spelled with a C are now spelled with a Q-U-E. Right. You know, it, right. It's just weird enough, just feels familiar enough that you don't even know you're goofing when you goof. And yeah. the board who made me promise to hit the ground creating changes and not wait that six to eight months because they couldn't afford to wait a whole other school year, neglected to tell the faculty that they instructed and mandated me to do that. So oh, the great. faculty Thanks. saw a brash New Yorker come in, not even give them the benefit of the doubt, but start to change everything. And right. I and by the and so by the time I asked the board president, did you ever like discuss this with the faculty? You know, it was gone. Trust was gone. So for the first time in my career, you can there are seven million ways in which I'm shitty at my work, right? Like seven million ways. There are 27 million ways in which I'm good at my work, but 7 million ways in which I suck. But it was never, never for a wrong motivation. I was never not to be trusted in my intent. And all of the sudden, nobody who worked for me trusted me. So that was a brand new thing. Yeah. Then let me tell you about the next one as we're developing these stressors. I feel like I should say you are above all else, Rhonda Rosenheck, a woman of extreme integrity. Like, like you have right, more like, like yes, like right. Like, how could anybody not trust me? But the situation put me in a situation unwittingly, and I didn't have the wisdom to say, before I take this job, did you ask the faculty about this? Like, I just thought it would work, you know? And um, I, you know, look, that was one of the 7 million ways in which I, you know, right, but, but- um, too trusting, slightly but, naive. Yeah, yeah, that was. So then at the same time, about a month in, when I moved from the temporary place to the place I was staying, I was in the shower and a dark brown blood emerged from my right nipple. Something I had never seen before. I'd never seen blood that color before come out of a body. I had never seen blood come out of a nipple. I had never had children. I'd never seen anything come out of any of my nipples, you know, and, 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 and here I said, I'm not on the provincial health insurance yet. And I'm no longer on my American health insurance. I'm on tourist health insurance in Canada. And I was coming from an America where if you had a pre-existing condition, you would either die or be poverty stricken the rest of your life. That was your choice. And I didn't know if that was the choice in Canada. And I was trying to find out without tipping anybody off. And I was failing to. And I didn't tell my mother or my husband that there was blood coming out of my nipple every time I went into the hot steamy shower because both of them would say, go to a doctor today. And then once they said it, I would have to, right? So for two plus months, I kept completely to myself the fact that there was blood emerging from my right nipple every morning. And then I went to work in a place where people didn't trust me, where I had to open and close the door and open and close the door and open and close the door because I was going through perimenopause. And when um, I was riding my bicycle and one day after months of riding my bicycle everywhere, it was beginning to get harder. I figured, I don't know anything about bikes. I probably just have to oil the, the chain or something, but I don't have a place to do it. I don't have it. So I, you know, it's probably a simple nothing, but I'm going to go to a bike shop because I don't know how to do the simple nothing. So I, I go to a bike shop and I say, it's getting harder and harder to pedal. Um, can you oil it, fix it, whatever, adjust it. And I come back when they say to come back and the guy says, there's nothing wrong with your bicycle. We oiled the chain, but there's nothing wrong with your bicycle. And I was like, oh, I didn't know what they're doing. They, they just charge me. They probably didn't even look at it. You know, so I ride my bicycle. It gets harder and harder. It's still the same exact situation. Day to day, it's getting harder to ride this bicycle. Like just to push it. They just couldn't, there's something wrong with it. It's like seizing up or something. 
So I go to another bike shop and I say, look, you know, and with my integrity, I open my big mouth and I say, I went to another bike shop and they didn't, you know, I don't think they even looked at it, frankly. You know, you need to look at this, something's going on. And I came back the next day and the guy looked at me with such sadness in his face. And I said, what's wrong? He said, there is nothing wrong with your bicycle. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's nothing wrong with your bicycle. It is not your bicycle that is making it harder and harder for you to ride. So something in my body day to day was weakening. It was crazy. So then I went and I had my surgery and then I went and I had radiation and um, um, my oncologist said, for the radiation that, um, you know, I said, can I work while I'm undergoing treatment? And she said, yeah, you know, you can. So um, I worked while I was undergoing treatment. It, it was torturous because, well, I, unbeknownst to anybody, had fibromyalgia. So um, anything that hurts was blooming with pain, excruciating pain. And then it gets worse even later. So it's three weeks plus another two weeks of it getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I'm at work, and uh, by the end of that time, um, I have a meeting with my- Who was your support my... team while what? you were doing this? Who was, who was your support team? I actually had, a, I had supports. There were, uh, parents liked me. Most of the parents liked me a lot. Um, and the teachers liked me. They just didn't trust me. Like, it was weird. They, they actually did like me. I have teachers here who trust me, but don't like me, you know? Right. <laughs> they liked me. They just didn't trust my intent. They thought I was- not respecting them, but in their day-to-day -day practice with me, they saw somebody they kind of liked, you know, that, you know, yeah. was confusing to them. So the, the teacher stepped up. I did, I had at that point was my second year of the school. So I had hired a curriculum coordinator. I'd set things in motion um, uh, educationally that allowed for me to step away and do this. Uh, and so I really only had to supervise her more than everybody because they were working in team. And I'll tell you about that some other day. It's a really exciting project. And I just found out that they're still doing it. Oh, um, that's good. good at my work. But, right. um, but um, so people drove me. Uh, people sort of made a schedule and picked me up from work and drove me to treatment and then drove me home. And interestingly, there was a, a, a beautiful Lebanese Canadian woman who, uh, and I, I, I call her that because she still had family in Lebanon, was still very connected to Lebanon, not because of who she is right. ethnically, right? But she had bought, she was an engineer, uh, not, a, not an engineer, a mathematician who had worked in high-tech field and she retired and she bought this old fashioned video store in a little house on a street behind the back door of the hospital. And she also, sold um, espresso, but not good stuff, like, like from an, an espresso machine, not custom-made espresso. And she sold gelato, right? You know, because like how much does she really make with the, and she had a table and chairs. And, and, and um, even though most people were streaming things, it was pretty active to stream things and stuff. In the neighborhood, people were still going in and out and buying her, her renting her videos. And I had been there once for, uh, gelato actually with my parents because there was a vegetarian restaurant right next door and then we saw we could get gelato there so when I realized that her place was out the back door of the hospital I went there and I and she welcomed me in such a way that I went there every day after my treatment in fact there was once when she wasn't there I arrived and there was a note on the door that said, Rhonda, I'm not in, but sit out here, relax oh until gosh. your car comes. I That's forgot sweet. I forgot to tell you I wouldn't be in today, right? Like, you know, so for three, three weeks, I was at her place every single day until somebody came and picked me up from there. So I had a very good support system. One of the mothers came in after the first day of radiation and said to me, oh, and my folks came up for the surgery. Okay. And my, my stepdad was great. He stayed in the hotel near the, near the, um, near the uh, art museum so that my mom and I could be in my apartment without worrying about a man being there and do whatever we needed to for the few days. And then he joined us, you know? So it was, I had that. There was a thing with Jonathan. It was a disaster. Um, 
but he was not helpful at all. In fact, when he came up for the high holidays, when I was still recovering people, this one, this one bought me dinner. This one dropped food at my house. I had so much food. This one helped prepare my kitchen. And I had arranged that we would go not to the synagogue, which I enjoyed, which was too far away. and was going to be very, very crowded, but to the, J to the big communal thing that was going to be in the JCC because it was closer. And I warned him, I might not be there. I might not be there much. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And it was, you know, again, he was so not, um, couldn't get past himself to help me. You know, he, he was angry that he went to Shul and I never arrived that morning. Uh, during that trip, he, um, he, I really had to argue with him to do the fucking dishes after, after dinner one night. Like, why was it like, he's not comfortable with my sponge. He's not comfortable with my, this I was like, fuck you, do the fucking dishes, you know? And, um, and, so let me ask, so here's a, here's a question and you'll see where the kindness really doesn't get through his illness sometimes, right? If I were a person having radiation and I said to you, almost no matter who you were to me, if you were in my house, if you were you know, the delivery person from Amazon and you were in my house and I said, I'm in so much pain, I can't even change the sheets. What would you say? Oh my gosh, don't bother. Let me take care of that. You shouldn't be doing anything. Please sit down and right. tell me what I can do to help. At very least, you'd say, let's do it together then, right? <laughs> very, very least, let you me know help what you. what he said? He put his hand on my shoulder and said, oh, and went into the living room and sat down and never changed the sheets. The same sheets he sleeps on when he's there. Right. Right. So there was nothing. He was not helpful. So, but, the, but the rest of the team was very, very helpful. And um, one mother, after my first day of radiation, came into my office and said, did it hurt? And I said, well, it, I mean, I really did feel it. I felt something, which the, when I said to the techs, my, my, my cells know they've been irradiated. They said to each other, oh shit, and sat me down and said, one in however many women feel it from the beginning. And mm -hmm. that means it's gonna be awful. And there was nothing we can do to mitigate it because if we spread it out, we lose the effect. If we right. stop it, we lose the effect. If we do shorter, we lose the effect. So you're gonna suffer and there's nothing we can do about it. But when she asked, I said, well, you know, no, it wasn't really uncomfortable. I just, I feel the, you know, I feel a little buzzy, but it wasn't. She said, well, you know, what, what, what was, she pushed a little farther. I said, well, I'll tell you weirdly, my right arm was cold because they had these blankets on my body, but my arm was over there and the top of my arm is on metal and the rest of my arm is on nothing and it was cold. Two days later, she comes in with this beautiful um, bronze colored knit sleeve with bling down here, but not up here so that the bling is away from everything. Beautiful with little little other colors in it and everything. She made me a sleeve. And so the rest gnarly. of the time, and the techs were out of their mind with how brilliant this was. Nobody had ever done this before. So when I was finished with my whole treatment, the next time we heard of somebody who needed treatment, which was the mother of one of the teachers, I took a thing and I put two or three of the, you know, architectural digest kinds of magazines people gave me. Mm -hmm. And I put, and I washed the sleeve and I put the sleeve in there and I put a few other things in there that, that became a goodie bag. And what I heard was that that goodie bag years later was still going to people, that that That's sleeve beautiful. was still going to people. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, so I had so much good there, so much love there. Um, I, I have many people that I consider, uh, well, I have several people that I consider good friends there and many people I have a lot of affection for from that from that time and I was very sad to have to leave Toronto I had to leave because I was on a specified work visa and once I lost that job I wasn't allowed to um, I didn't even know about that chapter of your journey yeah. you know it was I I lost the job because I left the job because um well I had a meeting after after uh 
after the towards the end of, of, of the radiation, where I said to my committee, my board chair and my little board committee that is meant to both support and evaluate me, I said, I'm, you know, if I if I don't, I'm still so flat. And if I don't perk up everything so-and-so is doing, everything we're doing, it's gonna start to fall flat. And I, I don't know what to do about it. And and I got weepy. And the next morning the the board chair who was this magnificent woman who was um, uh, from some wealth, but also herself a very savvy businesswoman, very, very savvy, savvy woman. And um, comes in uninvited at eight o'clock the next morning to, to, to school. And she, which was fine, you know, but she, she didn't call me in advance. She came and she, she came into my office and she said, you're like me. And let me tell you something, if you cry, in front of me, things are much worse than you think they are. Because out in your business world, you would not be paid $2 million to cry in front of your boss. I know this isn't the business world, but if you're crying in front of me, who is essentially your boss, this is really a problem. And I think you actually need a medical leave of absence. I think you can't be here. So, I went to my oncologist and I said, do you think I need a leave of absence? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been working. And, and my you know, boss said this to me this morning after I said this to her yesterday. And the oncologist said, you've been, been working? working? <laughs> and I said, you told me I could work. And she said, I told you you could. I didn't think you would. would right? So totally. She gave me a six week leave of absence. It was really four weeks plus there was a, one of the holidays there. So six weeks, I had six weeks off and I made such good use of those six weeks. Um, I, I slept in places, I went to places where you could, because it was no season at all, you could get a week's worth of a, of a vacation condo mm -hmm. for the cost of two nights hotel. I did three I of know. those, you know, and I, people gave me, um, somebody decided I'd never seen the Princess Bride. I had to see it. Somebody else gave me the set of the entire Ma Mash series, so I could, you know. And I, I was in these beautiful places. I did a whole series of of, of Facebook things out windows because I had uh -huh. nice windows to look out of. But I, I couldn't really. It was in the third of those places that I walked for 15 minutes outside, and it was a great victory. It was the turning around of of my health. So, um, but I came back when I came back. Uh, one of the board members uh, came to me, not the board president, but uh, well, at that point, the board president had turned over, I guess, also. It wasn't the new board president, but it was one of the board members came back and, and said, look, the board thinks probably we should just, um, at first they said, let's just, let's not evaluate this year for a new thing. Let's just extend one more year and then evaluate, which I thought was a good idea because what were you going to evaluate? I was, I was sick, you know? So, um, but they came back and they said, we actually think maybe we should just cut ties and here's the deal that we wanna offer you. And we're sorry you're sick, you know? And, and I was like, yeah, me too, you know? And I, I showed it to an attorney because at that point I was smart enough at least to show it to an attorney. And the attorney said, you couldn't do better than this. This is, this is you couldn't do better than this. I would change this language. I wouldn't even tell them you, you, that you saw an attorney, just ask them to change this one little thing and it's nothing. And, and, and say yes, because you're in no condition. Yeah. So I went back and I got a call from, before I could, literally before I could call him, I got a call from the board president who said, um, telling you stories that have nothing to do with what we're talking about, but. Yeah, but it's still, it, it does, because this is all feeding. I wanna hear about this. Okay, anyway. so, um, so he calls me and he's a nice fellow in the business world and um and he calls and he said we're we're revoking that offer we've uh we've been advised that when there's a vulnerability we don't need to offer that much and um you know my vulnerability was that without them re-signing the renewal i didn't have a work visa anymore and I had been asking him to sign it and he'd been holding off. Um, so I said, wait, I'm sorry, what did you say? Let me, I just wanna jot, jot down what you're saying. And I'm writing what he's saying. 
And then I say, I wish I could have recorded it, but I, I, I wrote down and I read to him what I wrote. So this is what you're saying. And he said, yes. And I said, so you're gonna, he said, you know, we're gonna give you a, a different offer. It'll be, it'll be to you the day after tomorrow or something like that. And I said, well, I was about to call you and accept this offer as, as reasonably fair. And he said, yeah, we've, you know, we've revoked it before you accept it because we don't need to give you that much now that there's this vulnerability. And I said, but you're establishing the vulnerability. The vulnerability is there in my life based on a choice that you as a school board has, has made. And he said, yeah, I understand, but this is just status quo, how business is done. So I got off the phone. I read back to him, like I said back to him, and I said, I've jotted this down, you know, asshole says that's fine, you know, and I called the attorney and he said, now you get rich because he's mm -hmm. just violated the human rights code of Ontario by disadvantaging you because of your vulnerable immigrant status. Well, so had he held off an hour and a half or had... You know, had he not had he not had that idea until the next day, and I would have accepted the thing, and we would have signed the thing, they would have gotten off with very low payments, and I would have left feeling that you know, fair enough. Nobody wants me as a head of school right now. I can't function as a head of school right now. Right. Instead, I ended up with enough money to really spend a year re recuperating. And, uh, and I came back to the United States. I didn't have enough money to buy a car. My husband uh, didn't dream of helping me buy a car. So my girlfriend loaned me the money to buy a car. Um, and I couldn't move back into the house because by that time I hadn't lived in the house for two, 20, about 29 months. And Jonathan lived in the house. Completely hoarded out. Completely un, un, impossible. Every inch of the, every inch of everywhere. And um, God, plus, how way, did that point, feel to you in, in your home? Like it's one thing when it's his home, but he did that to your I was, house. At that, I was so sick that I, I didn't want to push to be in that house in that condition. I wanted my house back. Right. You know, and he would say, well, I can and I can. And my uh, a pair of friends of ours said, stay with stay with us. And I did. And I was I stayed with them. And then I went on the road and I stayed in um, in um, couch surfing and Airbnb places. And I meandered beautiful meanders. I love them. They were really fun. Yeah. I, could, I could do them because I had a little bit of money and because uh, I could drive as slowly as I needed to. I could stop as many times as I'd already spent a good eight months resting, you know, so I could go a couple of hours in the car. And um, I meandered up to Portland here and then down to Florida and then back up. And, and um, it was, it was quite nice. And, um, and then I came back, I was staying, how was I staying when I I don't remember where I was staying when I came back or how this happened, but um, he, I guess it was before I left on the meander. I guess it was before I left when, when Jonathan was still like, he would come down and stay with me at our friend's house for, you know, we still had Thanksgiving together there, you know, there was still a sense of some togetherness. And I, and he said, I'll have it clean for you for January. And I was like, no, you, you, no, you won't. won't. And he said, well, we'll have it clean in time for March and we'll have a birthday party there. And he said, give me this one more chance. Yeah, there was one more chance, you know? So I'm like giving him this one more chance. And then one day I, oh, it was Hurricane Sandy. And I was coming down and I was staying with my cousins in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is now an hour from where I live. And uh, I was stuck there to not come into Hurricane Sandy in New York. Uh, for, you know, to me, it felt like a month. They say it was about a week, but, but um, and from there, I don't remember what happened. Maybe I was trying to explain this all to my cousin, but from there, I called Jonathan and I said to him, 
who are we kidding? Yeah. You're not even going to start to try to prepare the house until March 6th. You're going to fail. The amount of anxiety it's going to produce for you is going to make you insane. And you're going to fail. So let's just stop. I'm done. I'd like to get a divorce. To which he said at first, can you take my sister in the divorce? The sister was as nutty as he was, but nastier. So <laughs> I said, yeah, maybe we'll see. I was her, I was her, um, okay, she had some good. illness and I was her um, proxy, et cetera, not him, you know, because okay. he couldn't be trusted to be anywhere on time or anything. So anyway, so that was, you know, then it took actually uh, until, so that was, I was married to him for 12 years. I stayed separated from him for about three years when I tried to work again. I knew I couldn't both work and divorce him at the same time. So I stayed separate, but spoke. And then when I had to leave work because my illness disallowed me to work, I was, I was waking up every morning thinking today might be the day I die. And I was, you will actually be interested that I, um, that I wrote and reworked my will so many times during that time, thinking I was really like on the brink of dying. Like the will was written to, um, you know, you get those two pictures on the wall, you know, and, 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 you know, Sookie, do you want this or do you want that? You know? <laughs> well, just even that, like that your experience with your own stuff. Right. It's so like inventoried. And like, like down to like, I'm only bringing, you know, there's this, uh, the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning. Have you read this book? No, I don't read books of death cleaning. Well, it's like a 88 year old Swedish woman wrote it. And it's basically about the fact that everything that's like in this golden age of her life after getting rid of and going through the things of all of the people that have meant something to her up into, you know, lists of just partners, kids, parents, all of them that she's gone through methodically her entire space and does it on a regular basis to just ensure that everything that's there has a purpose. And it's designated to, you know, she's like, if you have your box of personal effects, you can just write throw it away when I die and they don't even have to open it. But like, don't like, don't leave it for somebody else to have to process. When we, when we finally were on the final day of, of divorcing um, both of his, his attorney and the, and the senior attorney in the firm that was representing him came up from New York. Both of my attorneys were there and they were just all there to, beat the shit out of him to come to a, an agreement. You know, this is, this is um, three years of separation. And at this point it's, I believe three years into divorcing. And um, we have no kids, right? And um, twice during that time, my, um, twice, well, once Jonathan and I ourselves tried to inventory the different things that we would divide out whenever it was that we separated. And then once my attorney had us do it and we spent fucking hours on the phone, even though I said to him, you know, we're gonna do this and he's gonna chuck it out the window just like the last time. Well, now the attorneys are telling you to do it, do it. So we, we did it, you know, who, who gets the, the milk dishes, who gets the meat dishes, who gets the this that was from so-and-so and the this that was from so-and-so. And, you know, the things that were obviously mine, a little box of personal doodads from the first love of my life that, you know, fit into a box this small and, and my books and this and that, and things that I have that I consider family things and, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And we wrote the whole list and I send it and copy him and send it to the attorney. And then he immediately says, she's lying. We didn't, we didn't agree on this. <laughs> So, you know, fuck it. So the, the day that, um, that they're beating him up in terms of a financial uh, agreement, and, and the reason there is one is because I helped make possible a, a large land deal uh, when we were married, and I was due part of the income of it. Mm -hmm. So um, we had also said in our marriage that I would make the day-to-day -day money, and he would work on this 
on our retirement. So right. when I was making six figures, all that money was just seeping away through, he was just a black hole of everything, you know? So money just seeped away, seeped away, seeped away. Nothing got saved when I was at my peak earning. And um, most of the time, because we had to have two different homes at a time and three different cars, because he had two and I had one, you know, it was just insane, you know? And, and um, he also worked through savings that he had. We bought a house that was far over our heads, you know, in a neighborhood, because we had to live in the particular place where Jews could live for rules he followed that I didn't, you know, and then we had to have a four bedroom house instead of a two bedroom or one bedroom apartment, you know, because, you know, so, so, you know, again, he would say, and this time I don't say it with love, he would say my perspective is completely skewed, but this is my perspective. And in this case, it's actually, I don't care whether he thinks it's skewed or not. Right. But, um, so I was really fighting for this money because I was ill. And at that point I wasn't even accept, I was not accepted for a disability but rejected for long-term health insurance because I was too disabled already, right? You know, so I was in this weird place and, yeah. um, and uh, I needed this money. So, um, so I was waiting while they were working with him for hours and hours and hours and hours. I was just waiting in this little waiting room in the courthouse. And um, my attorney at one point comes into me and he was, he was sneaky with me. And I understand why now, but he was sneaky with me. He, he said, um, if you had to tell me the absolute deal breaker things in your possession, where you literally would not divorce Jonathan unless you got these things, what would those things be? And on the spot, the things that I thought of were the things that I consider myself stewarding, not owning, right? So right. The, the box of letters from my great grandfather, the the artwork from family members and friends that 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 you know I felt I was holding on to for the time being. Um, certain other things like that, my books of Talmud, my this and that that would go to a next generation, to others when I right. was done with it, and that in fact your cultural you know, legacy. Yeah, but even that I didn't own them; they didn't originate. No, with but me they're like uh, right heritage, like right. they're. they're Right. And that's, that's all I listed. And that's all that got into the final agreement. And the final agreement says that he owns everything else. So he now owns the little plastic <clears throat> helicopter toys that had something to do with my first love and my mother when he was dying, you know, and, 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 and the wood chips that also had to do with him and these little stones that had to do with my father and the size 14 pencil dress that looked on fucking believable on me and someday I might fit back into it. You know, like he now owns everything except these things. And believe me, it took a lot of- Well, owns, <laughs> buried right. somewhere in there. <laughs> somewhere, right. But, but, but has possession of. And every yeah. dish, everything that we got on our, in our, for our wedding, everything oh. we got for our wedding. Everything. A, a wine How cup that, that a previous fit? boyfriend bought for me in Israel he now owns like he didn't even volunteer the most obvious things that had something to do with my life that had nothing to do with his life he didn't even generously give those back to me you know it was nothing and um when i got them i put all the artwork in storage carefully i took the books and had already arranged for two different synagogue libraries that didn't have them in them yet and divvied them out and and um, that was kind of it, you know, that was, so when I, so I have a small storage, so I had all the artwork up in my house, but then I sold the house uh, at a certain point. So now the artwork is in storage and it'll go into my tiny house writing studio. Oh, good. Um, and the, it's a tiny space, but yeah. every single inch of wall is being designed to be a, 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 a a gallery of all that. Yeah. Art. Showcase. Yeah. So when you have to think about the stuff that got left behind that has actual, that evokes a real physical response, like how do you separate yourself from the idea of ever seeing those things again? And how do you like bless and so release even knowing before, that it's really just like buried in there? So even before I met Jonathan, I had been moving a lot. I was very peripatetic um, for somebody who 
absolutely certain she was going to be a homebody. I was constantly moving. And, and even within New York City around my graduate studies, um, I moved like six times, you know, in four years. I was moving, 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 moving. So I used to joke, because every time you move at three o'clock in the morning, you know, you're suddenly you're allergic to packing tape. Fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, right? You know, like anything with sentimentality for me at three o'clock in the morning before the movers are coming, it's just a thing. And I don't care about it at all anymore. And um, so I had been weeding and weeding and I had what I called very fondly a mental list of things I used to own. Mm -hmm. And I can recall that list to bring out the sentimental thought that it comes with it. Now, before you called me about this, so before you called me about this, okay, I, for the first time ever, wrote that list into a poem, which I can share with you. Yes, please. Why did I, uh, I will share that with you. It's called, it's not, it's not called things I used to own. It's called things I used to have. You ready? Yes. Okay. We can, we can post this also. If you want to, I can give it to you. Good, please. Things I used to have used bookstore copies of To Kill a Mockingbird, perfect straw hat with adjustable leather strap, innumerable blank journals with zero to three pages written in. Leather jack, leather letter jacket from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Wool poncho from Reykjavik. Coral sheet music with the words, peace of Christ, hard underlined and the words, quote, unquote, really feel it. Enough pillows and blankets to sleep 13. Cheap, beautiful mother of pearl pendant carved with a dove broken into pieces a red 100% wool knit pantsuit that itched me red everywhere. Soft leather briefcase, soft leather briefcase, huge soft leather purse like a briefcase, soft leather like briefcase with a laptop slot, soft leather backpack, recycled soda bottle totes. Extra large man pajamas in window pane plaid, one set navy, one burgundy. A a collection of Ogden Nash's doggerel, also claimed by my brother. Two small plastic helicopters, eight gray to pink granite stones, four wood chips, and a tin wheel of guava paste. Dangly earring singles, many. Kodak Instamatic with film waiting to be developed. Blue eyeliner Mickey Mouse drawn onto my cheek. Talbot's cardigans, easy movement pencil skirts, loafers in navy black and rhonda pink. Hairbrush, pick, barrettes, comb, scrunchies. Shoebox full of someone else's family snapshots. French provincial vanity with lift up compartment filled with nail polish and free gift eyeshadow kits. Wedding gown with one chocolate ice cream stain and two custom sewn sheer sleeves, each of which cost more than the floor model dress. Impala, Civic, Accord, Maxima, Accord, Ford Fusion Hybrid. Two Andy Warhol, Daisy Prince. Two cats, two cats. A father, a potential future father now deceased to never actualized kids. Sadness to my toes. A crushed future father, now an ex, to avoided ovum born of his sneakiness. Hand quarter sorn tool chest turned coffee table, wood and silk mini chest made in Bali, chunky painted wood coffee table made in Indonesia, wooden grass baskets made in South Carolina and China. Toppling pile of Columbia House Club CDs, but no player, expired monthly pass, for the Aleph 115 Jerusalem bus. Kulat blouse combo of burgundy viscose with way too many tiny elephants marching in every direction. Fear of death. That's uh... That's kind of my memoir in the, via the things. It's not really in order. It's not in chronological order. No, but it's the those, it's like they're so much bigger than odd socks, 
you know, like the, these, like the, where is that? And it's the kind of stuff that I would think that one day when in decline of our faculties, it's like, where's my burgundy viscose suit? Like, I just, you know, like that needs to, it right <laughs> but like it's because it's still there, you know, like this, this, you can evoke the like, oh, like, why is it something that we carry around with us? Like I have to, when I go through old photos of even, we've only lived in this house for four years, but four years with three kids spanning a decade is like 40 years. Like I look at pictures from the first month that we lived here. I'm like, oh my God, that was like three couches ago. Like <laughs> how do we, I don't even remember that these things that were what made my home are wow. so good. And when I first moved to New York city, one of my girlfriends who waved goodbye to me when I was driving away from Austin in a CRX, a CRX that was stuffed to the gills with myself, my sister and my belongings, which is like, you know, a, a good Amazon box worth of things because a <laughs> it's like a Hot Wheels car. But she showed up at my apartment where I lived alone two years after I moved to Manhattan. And she's like looking through my kitchen looking through at, into my little bathroom, into my little living room, into my bed. She's like, how did you do this? And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, I mean, you left Texas and you had nothing. And like, now you have a whole apartment of stuff. And I know you don't have any, like, where did this come from? And I'm like, uh, sidewalks and <laughs> Goodwills and lectors, <laughs> home furnishings, right? Like yeah. the the different ones that just all the it, it, we just accumulated, and it comes again. But then, what are the things that we feel like we need, and what are the things that leave that print? That it's just like it's even though your life has gone on, there's that like, God damn it, like you have my. God damn it feeling about it i actually any of um, it i feel like i have them i feel like okay. i have them and and that's i think the answer to your essential question right. for me. i actually feel like i have them i like things but i i like i don't i don't need the thing to evoke the good feeling the thing brought about. I can, rem I, the, the thing can still be the key, but it's just the thought of the thing. I mean, when I say I have that stack of CDs, but no CD player, oh my God, that's a whole story in my life. Right. And it's funny, but frustrating, but so funny. And of course we have to get a CD player because well, we have all these CDs, right? You know. Yes. It's not the CD player that evokes that memory. It's the CDs without a CD player. Right. Um, I can give you each of those things. And, and there's there's more that even aren't on the list. But when I, I had a job in Florida, I'd, I, I'd uh, been living in, it was after Joe died, I'd been living in Massachusetts. So we had accumulated things and I had accumul accumulated things in the way you just described. So I stored them all in the basement of my friend's house and I went to Israel for the year and then I ended up taking a job in Florida. And in that part of Florida, I can get a really nice big apartment with open spaces. I, I, I didn't have, I'd given a lot of things away, but I had my, some of my antiques and, um, and I brought those down and I bought a couch and I, I actually bought a, what do they call it? A living room suite with a couch and a, and a thing and a chair. And I had a futon over there in that bedroom. And I bet he, you know, that all this stuff. And then I added a few more antiques to it and a few more things. And, and then I went to graduate school on 122nd and Broadway, staying in student in one bedroom of a student dormitory right. where the apartment was furnished. And the letter that I got that was about from housing that told me where I was living had it was a letter of maybe this much text on a whole, you know, business sized piece of paper. The word small was in it four times or more, right? You know, I had a, I had a desk, I was getting a desk and a, and a, and a table and a chair and a dresser and a bookshelf and a lamp. I had to bring my own trash can, you know? <laughs> you know? Right. 
right. this is Small what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. You know, and and you know, that's all that fit in that room. So I had to take all of those things and I was going to put everything in store. I mean, I made a home like you would not believe. Oh God, was it a beautiful home. <laughs> Such a beautiful home. And, and so many places for people to sit and so many, oh my God, I could have guests forever and I could, I could have meals at any time. It was magnificent. It was a beautiful home. I loved everything about it and everything in it. And some of the things were emotional. Some of the, the antiques that were there were, were somehow related to Joe and, you know, my past and different things. And, but most of them were just beautiful. I had created, this is the first home I created all by myself. And um, so I was trying to figure out what to do. And, um, and I called my parents movers who had moved them from New York down to Florida. And I said, I'm thinking about putting this stuff into storage. What, is, what would it cost for you to, to pick it up, pack it, put it in storage? And he asked me what I was doing and why and this and that. You always want to take the advice of somebody who gives you advice against their own best interest. I know, right? Right. So he says to me, don't do that. Because the minute you're never never in the state of New York going to live in a place that can fit that couch in its living room. Right. Never. And all of these things that you have, he said, you need to sell them right now while they're set up in your beautiful house. Because if you have to sell them when they're in a storage unit, you will get pennies on the dollar for them. And you will never find another home for them in your lifestyle. So I like got off all this beautiful house and home that I loved. And I put word out to everybody I knew, I'm giving it all away, take whatever you want. And I just packed up my artwork. I had a shelf of, I had a collection of of teapots. I remember my stepdad was standing behind me as I was looking at the teapots. And he just says to me, one, one teapot. I took the wrong teapot, but okay. Uh, right teapot though Rhonda I I so so one of the teapots that I don't have was a beautiful black um handmade clay fired clay unglazed it had snails as legs and a frog as a lid and my girlfriend Missy and her husband bought that for me after staying with me when his synagogue had had a fire and they had to stay with me for the whole high holidays because where they were having their services during the time was right across from my home, you know? So even though I didn't go to their synagogue, they stayed with me that whole, so I, I don't have it. It's not useful. It wasn't going to be the, the, um, it wasn't going to be the one teapot that I could bring with me, but I have it. I don't, I don't forget it. I have it um, just as delightfully as if it were gathering dust on a shelf. I don't right. feel sad that it's gone. Um, they, they make me bubble. I bubble up with these things. The hat, I, I bought that hat in Cal. I was on this trip in California. That was the most perfect hat. Hats look stupid on me. And, and this was the most perfect hat, the only one that didn't look stupid, didn't, and then some of them that didn't look stupid just looked like I was wearing a costume. You know, this didn't look like, I could actually wear this and not be in cosplay mode, you know? And, and, and it was such good quality and it had the, oh, and I, oh, I loved it so much. And it got lost between one move to another with a man in a van guy. And I know what bag it was in that I never saw again. Right. And I never saw it again. Like, I don't care. I loved that hat. Right. But loving that hat, I don't, I don't feel that I don't have that hat. And, and now I'm going to take a really weird leap. I don't feel that I don't have my father or Joe right. either. Yeah. Right. I tell so many of the things that were about them so often that right. you would think that they were absolutely right here as of yesterday. And they just don't leave my brain. And, and yet they don't clog it up either. So yeah. that's in that list of the fear of death. 
I don't have fear of loss. I don't have a, I, only my mother. I have a fear of my mother's death. I know that that's going to be beyond excruciating and yet inevitable, right? You know, but I mean, unless I die first, which is just not fair. Like you just, you know, <laughs> no, not fair, you know, to her, you know, but, but, but um, easier on me, not fair to right. her. I don't, um, I've had a lot of loss and it was really horrible. I lost my father and my beloved, all my great uncles, my mother and my brother each married within a 28 day period of time, the entire landscape of who is and isn't my immediate family changed in under a month. People became my family in ways that they weren't before. You know, and, and, and people were just dropping out of my family. Um, you know, Joe's family, who was like my family, when five years passed and I couldn't move past him, I called them and said, I don't know why, but I, I got to do everything I can. I can't be your sister and your daughter anymore. I, I got to move past somehow, right? So I had an entire branch of my family that I gave up to try to, to, to regain my health. Now we've reconnected, but you know, but but really, really modestly, you know, and I just um, what I have realized is that I have Joe and I have, I have, um, I have everybody. I have Max currently in my life. I have Jonathan for better or worse. I still have him. I haven't lost him. I don't love him anymore. I don't crave him. I don't bring him into my conversation all the time because it's fun, you know, because I want that feeling again, but I haven't lost him. He's not gone. And people sometimes don't understand that. Sometimes people say you're sort of lost in the past, but no, the way I have, in, the way I have without intent, but the way my so I'm not saying I've done it on purpose, but the way my past stays with me, it's very compressed in space. It doesn't Woven up. Into who you it's are. like folded into little magic little things. Now, the five years between the time my dad died and the time Joe died, I used to think of as a, a sort of a magic attache case that fit under the bed. And sometimes it would come out and pop open a little or I would pop it open and I have to close it again, you know, because that was a time of tremendous loss and tragedy and and I became obese and, you know, all sorts of horrible things happened during that time and some really incredibly wonderful ones at the same time. I have, um, you hear? Yes. I feel I have another very beautiful friend who we're, we're going into that age as, as a good friend said, I got the job of calling his, this other friend's three buddies that he died, the, the, this foursome of guys, so the brother, called me and I said, you want me to take the guys? Cause he had, you know, all the rest of their lives to, to call. So I called the guys. And the first one of the guys from high school said, was silent for a minute. And he said, you know, we're all gonna start making these calls to each other soon, you know? And I know that. And I, I poke to see how that feels. Cause it's really easy to say with losses that were 20 years uh, acquired that I'm not afraid of loss anymore. And um, I, I'm not afraid. I know that that's going to happen. I know that that people will be gone, and so all the more reason to sponge up who they are, because I know myself well enough that I, they won't die for a very right. long time after they've died. Yeah if at all, you know, they'll die right. with me maybe, but probably not because I've shared who they are with others, you know, but, but um, so I'm not afraid of, I'm a little more afraid of losing others than I am afraid of, of my own death. I have no fear of death. I, if from the time of Joe's death forward, I have been very clear that at any minute that it was my time, I would, and that was 19, uh, 1991, January, 1991 is when he died. I, I'm like a person who's been given, you know, a second chance in that I know that every minute I get to live is a minute I, nobody had to give me to live. And, and, exactly. and so I, I only don't want to die if I'm like right in the middle of a project and I want to finish, right. like I'll actually say to God, you know, can you hold on? Like either, 
you know, kill me before I start or can you wait till I'm done? You know, right? <laughs> just not in the middle. Right. And I'd rather not die before my mother because that's not fair at all. And also, if I had to die before my mother, if I died in a plane, which my dad died in a plane crash, I, my, my uh, Jewish tradition has a, um, a wayfarer's blessing, you know, prayer for, for, for safety and such, right? So I don't say that whole thing. I get on the plane and I say, do not do this to my mother. You will not do this twice to my mother. If you do this twice to my mother, she will never come back to you. Right? I know, so I right? totally guilt God into, I know for a fact that I will be safe because once you well, say guys, that to someone, I have they said that do every it. Time, every time I'm going to visit my mother around the holidays with all of the all of the whole family and that's the that is the protective blessing is that like don't ruin christmas for my family forever that's right that's right and once you say that like like any person right like you can't say that to a person that they'd have to be a sociopath to do it yeah do it totally. after that, right and when I, when I'm on a multi-leg trip, I always say thank you when I land. And yes. when I'm on a multi-leg trip, I get back on and I say, just want to let you know on this flight. I know, right? <laughs> and exactly. I say it. And my dad died in 1987. And I still say it every single time. I have no fear of flying. But just in case you were thinking this was my time. <laughs> I know, I know. Your dad's keeping you safe. That's what every time we land, I'm like looking around at people being like, I hope you know how exhausting it is for me to keep this thing keep in the air. Safe. <laughs> all the time. Like I, it's like, it keeps, it takes all oh, my power. Yeah, I, I've got, ew. I need a, I need a massage after that play. Oh God, I got it. Hey, I also said I would tell you what this podcast is not going to be. This podcast is not going to be a place where we judge people for what they hang on to or how long it takes them to let go of the things that they may be dragging around with them from spot to spot in their experience. This podcast is not going to be fancy. This podcast is not going to be very well edited. This podcast is going to be messy magic. Me throwing it out there and sharing with you the stuff that I just can't keep to myself anymore. So thanks so much. We're all ultimately just walking each other home. So thanks for joining me on this journey. And if you're enjoying, please follow along. Please leave a review. Find me wherever you're getting your podcasts. And take care. And thank you so much for being here. Anything else you need to know, you'll probably find in the show notes. If not, drop me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Have a great day, you guys. Thanks for joining me. What's up with your stuff?